Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. If you know someone who is not changing, I have a good word for you today. Do not despair. There is a way to help them. Of course, I'm not suggesting that they will change. I think I think everybody knows that. Our responsibility is to cooperate with God as he brings change into people's lives. And so even if you did everything perfectly, and maybe some parents need to hear this, I mean, even if you were the perfect parent, you can't bring change in anyone's life. But there is a process for transformation that every Christian should know. We do want to cooperate with God as he works in people's lives. And so breaking down the dynamics of change would be critical. We want to know what those essential elements are to to work with God as he leads people into Christ-like transformation. And so I hope that the Lord will use these thoughts as you serve those whom you love so well. Hello, everybody. This is Rick Thomas. We are doing Life Over Coffee. Make your way over to our coffee shop, lifeovercoffee.com, and benefit from and also share thousands of resources on all things sanctification. Now, if you want to read, watch, or listen what I'm sharing with you here, you can find it, and the title of it is, If Your Friend Is Not Changing, Consider This. Now, I want to bring my fictional friend Biff out, and I want to share a fictional story to illustrate this this point about the dynamics of change. Biff was living in secret sin. Biff is a Christian. He did not tell anyone about his secret for many months. And the longer that he held on to it, he became more frustrated, more relationally distant, and internally hardened. Now, by the way, these are also clues. If you see that your your friend or maybe a family member, that they're growing in ongoing frustration, they are becoming relationally distant, and you perceive that they may be some hardness, some uh, insensitivity as far as what they're doing going on in them, well, those are clues that maybe there is a hidden sin. Now, you want to charitably judge them, not in a cynical or suspicious way, but if that is what's happening, if that is what you are observing, you don't want to dismiss too quickly out of hand. There may be some secret activity operational in that person's life. It appears that what Paul said was absolutely correct. He said that God's wrath rains down from heaven against anyone who presses the truth of God out of their lives. That is Romans 1.18. And for Biff, his life was becoming unbearable. I mean, even for him, though he doubled down to keep the masquerade going. I mean, keep moving forward when your plan is going badly, hoping things will change eventually. That's also the recipe for insanity. If it's not working, just do it over and over again. And of course, it's going to lead to the same result. It's the golfer's fantasy, always believing that you'll straighten that shot out on the next hole. Well, Biff was living inside his personal golfer's fantasy. Here's what Paul said in 118 of Romans, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, against all unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Well, eventually the hidden sin did come to light, 
which was a mercy from the Lord, because Biff had no intention of telling anyone about what he was doing. And so that pressure from heaven, the wrath of God that is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness, Biff couldn't take the pressure any longer. Sin will always ravage the soul if left unattended because sin is not a neutral force. It is a living, active agent that captures the heart while leaving its victims callous and blind. You could say that Biff was a modern-day David. You remember the story as he kept silent about his sin against Bathsheba? You see, sin's purpose is to penetrate the soul, to destroy the inner person. The spirit, the mind, the will, the emotions, the conscience, the thoughts, the intentions, the motivations of the heart, they all become gnarled and ravaged and eventually conquered. It's like a Midwestern town after a tornado. Sin does not take prisoners. It kills them. David captured the effects on his soul, the person who keeps quiet after their nefariousness. He said this in Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4. You're probably familiar with it. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Listen to what David is saying about the wrath of God that is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who press the truth of God out of their lives. He said, when I kept silent about my nefariousness, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer." Have you ever considered how the Lord is part of sin's assault on our souls? I mean, if you carefully reflect on what Paul was saying in Romans 1.18, God does rain down his wrath. God does bring uh, his pressure on anyone who pushes the truth out of their lives. I mean, nobody, believer or unbeliever, it really doesn't matter in this context. Nobody can escape the displeasure of God or the distortions of sin if they don't want to come clean. I mean, the, the cultural person can say that I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. Well, in context, it doesn't matter whether you believe or not. Truth is truth. You can say that 2 plus 2 does not equal 4, but that doesn't alter the reality of what math is. And we can say that I don't believe in God, but it doesn't, it doesn't alter the reality of who God is and the effect of sin on our lives. David felt the wrathful anger of the Lord as well as the deteriorating effects of wrongdoing during his silence. Biff was slowly dying on the vine also because of his choice to keep quiet. Sin's deception had clouded his judgment. Repentance is only sweet to the humble soul, and the person who, is, who has experienced the gift of repentance always testifies to its blessedness. In fact, that's what David said. Uh, he came around to understand the bless, blessedness of repentance eventually. In the same psalm, in 32, he said this, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And so the question is, well, what is repentance? What does it look like, practically speaking? 
I mean, let's say that you did not want to be silent about your sin anymore and that you wanted to walk out repentance. What are the steps to repentance? Perhaps it would be helpful for us to think about the order of salvation. Are you familiar with the term ordo salutis? It's a fancy term. It just means the order or the steps or the sequence of salvation. You see, salvation has many steps to it. Salvation began in eternity past, and it will conclude in eternity future when we are glorified. In between those eternities, we are regenerated. We are born again. But full salvation, complete salvation, even though we are as secure as we possibly can be, we will not see the fullness of salvation until glorification. And so if you take the word salvation, if you stretch it like a rubber band and you peer inside of it, you'll see a linkage of beautiful portraits hanging on the walls of a magnificent museum that we call salvation. Well, there is a similar linkage to repentance, or you could say an order to repentance. Now, what I've done here is I've placed these elements sequentially uh, to show you how we all should interact with the elements or the order of repentance so that complete and effectual change can happen for anyone. Now, if you want to read more about my work on repentance and to get inside of all 13 of these steps, you're welcome to go to lifeovercoffee.com. You can type the word repentance in or doctrine of repentance, and you could spend months studying all things repentance because I'm not going to have the time here to go through all 13 steps in an elaborate kind of way. I'm only going to identify a couple of things, but I will give you the 13 steps of repentance. Here they are in order. Number one, obviously, is sin. There would be no need to repent if there were no sin. And so sin is number one. After we sin, there is guilt. And then there is conviction, number three. Confession is number four. And then five is pre-forgiveness, six is forgiveness, seven is post-forgiveness, number eight is reconciliation, restoration is number nine, put off the old person is number 10, renew the mind, number 11. Number 12 is put on the new person, and then finally number 13, go and make disciples, disciple others. Now, that is the order of repentance, and again, if you want to get inside of that and really explore and, and learn all about it, just go over to lifeovercoffee.com, and again, we have a lot of free resources for you. But complete repentance, I'm talking about complete transformation, it is not any of those things, but all of them, one at a time, in sequential order. And you will know if you have changed or repented after you go from a sinning, self-focused lifestyle to a redemptive, other-centered lifestyle. You go from being a sinner, uh, selfish, everything about me, to being a disciple-maker, other-centered, outward-facing, pouring yourself into others instead of pouring yourself into yourself. That is full repentance in 13 steps. Our lack of working through all the elements of repentance does explain why we live in recurring sin patterns. And I don't think that every Christian knows this. They struggle with sin, and maybe they feel conviction and they confess it, but they don't know how to completely transform 
The Christian life consists of repentance and ongoing repenting, a redemptive lifestyle, a repentive lifestyle that makes any person, any friend, any family member, any church dynamic. We will never fully repent because we cannot attain perfection in the here and now. Making repentance a living necessity in our lives if we want to live well with God, to live well internally with ourselves, not having amped up soul noise, always uh, churning inside of us, and of course to live well with others. To do that, we really have to understand what repentance, full repentance, is. And so every Christian should have a solid functional knowledge of repentance and an active lifestyle that is compatible with that knowledge. Long-term, progressive, sustainable change will not happen without a practical Bible knowledge and authentic biblical engagement. As with all journeys, how you begin determines how you will continue throughout the process, and it will also determine your end point. Do you want to end well? Well, then start well, and then also maintain biblical expectations throughout your journey. And if you do, you will end well, and your friends will be most appreciative. This need in our lives to understand and practice repentance is why it's essential to understand all of the elements in the order of repentance. Now, again, I won't be able to go through all 13 of them and explain them here, though I have done that uh, at our coffee shop. But for now, what I want to focus on is one specific aspect of repentance, and that is confession. Now, after we sin, sin was number one, you remember. By the way, confession was number four. And so in the order, there was sin, there was guilt, there was conviction, and then there was confession. And so I want to focus on confession, but I'll mention the the prerequisite three that are before confession. And so after we sin, there will be guilt from God, of course. Now, this guilt does not require acknowledgement or acceptance because we do not determine the lines of, of transgression. Guilt is not a feeling. Guilt is a forensic fact. It's, it's, it's a declaration. God declares us guilty. Going back to our cultural counterparts, it doesn't matter if they believe in God, agree with God, accept God, reject God. I mean, in context, that doesn't matter. They're still guilty before God. We all are. And that's one of the things that we read in John 3, 36, that the world is under God's guilt, his judgment right now. Whether you feel it, accept it, reject it or not, guilt is not a feeling. It is a forensic fact. And though we can twist sin to mean whatever we want it to mean, we can't change what God says about his righteous morality if you cross the line, which is basically what transgression means. You are guilty. And so when I sin, I am guilty before God. I can dance around it. I can make excuses. I can point out the faults of others. I can play the victim card if I wish. But none of those things reduce the guilt or change God's opinion about what I did. We serve a non-manipulatable God. You sin. You are declared guilty. It is a fact. It is not a feeling. And so the only correct answer to guilt is is confession. 
born out of conviction. And so we have sin, we have guilt, we have conviction, and then eventually we'll get to confession. Now, sometimes, rather than confessing our sin, the transgressor will choose one of sin's allies. Did you know that sin has friends, buddies uh, that work in cahoots with sin? There are several of them. For example, blame. Blame is a standard deflection. Blame is one of sin's favorite allies. It excuses my actions by placing the reason on another person or another thing. That woman made you made me do it, or that thing happened to me, and it wasn't my fault because I re- responded in anger. If you had come up on that traffic light, you would have responded with sinful anger as well. That's blame. That's one of sin's allies. And then there is justification, another buddy of sin, which is really basically just declaring myself not guilty by saying something like, I'm not wrong for what I did. You just justified yourself. You just declared yourself not guilty. And then some folks like rationalization, another ally. It says something like, it's not a big deal. Everybody is doing it. Now, here's an interesting point, something that I trust that you will consider, is that there is such a normalization of sin in our culture that many people do not have proper biblical categories as they unwittingly rationalize their transgressions away. And then, of course, there is alleviation, a fourth buddy, a fourth ally of sin. When the wrath of God rains down from heaven— when it is pressing us, like what David was saying in Psalm 32, well, the temptation for the transgressor would be to escape, to find relief. And we can do this through addictive behaviors like binge-watching television, a momentary escape from the pressure that I feel in my soul. Some folks will choose shopping. Others will choose eating. Some will choose porn. Others will choose drugs. There are many ways to alleviate the internal pressure that is going on inside of us because of the sin that we are committing. Now, those alleviating techniques do not work. In fact, they only lead to uh, more traps, and eventually it can lead to life-dominating sins. These deflections are like someone standing before the judge in traffic court. They were driving too fast, and the speeder makes much of what the other drivers did while never owning what he did. It's smoke and mirrors. It is game-playing. It is intellectual dishonesty, which is a more pleasant way of saying the person is either willfully lying or self-deceived. Self-deception is the precondition for the conscience to blur the lines in a person's mind between right and wrong, leading to the use of one of these deflections, blaming, justification, rationalization, alleviation. It is incredible for the Lord to send conviction immediately on the heels of our guilt. The conviction is our way of feeling. It is our way of experiencing God's guilt over what we have done. Without conviction, without feeling what we have done wrong, then, well, we would not know that guilt has been declared. 
This experience is what David was talking about in Psalm 32. He felt the Lord's guilt, a heavy conviction for what he did. It was affecting him spiritually and physically. And I know that's hard to hear. And I know many of you have experienced conviction as I have. And so it doesn't sound palatable. It doesn't sound like something that we can be grateful for. But imagine if you have gone through a, a process of using sense allies, rationalization, justification, blaming, alleviation, and your conscience becomes so hard that you're desensitized to conviction. That is a much worse condition. And though feeling conviction, sensing that we have done wrong doesn't feel good, that is actually a that's actually a good thing. Now, I suspect that David felt this weight. He felt the weight because of his profound affection for God. You see, David had a massive heart for the Lord. The higher your love is for God, the more significantly you will feel the weight of your sin. And of course, the opposite is also accurate. If you do not love God, then sinning against God, it just ain't no big thing. To be desensitized to sin is a dangerous place to be. Paul talked about this in 1 Timothy 4.2 when he wrote about the seared conscience. To sin repeatedly without genuine repentance, that is the beginning of a layering effect where you can no longer feel the conscience. There is a quenching of the Spirit. There is a grieving of the Spirit. And if a person does not feel conviction for sin, they will not be motivated to confess their sin, which is the fourth step in the order of repentance. And so there is sin, then there is guilt, and then there is the mercy of conviction. And then the point that I want to make here is confession. To confess is to agree with God. It could mean also to agree with anyone else. The rule of thumb is, is that the sphere of the transgression and the sphere of the confession should be the same. And so all transgressions are sins against God, and so we always confess our sins to God. Sometimes we sin against God and other people too, and so if other people are within the sphere of our transgression, then we want to confess to them also about what we did. True confession cannot happen if we do not experience spirit-given conviction because we won't be able to confess the sin committed if we are unaware of our guilt through conviction. One of the instructive things I have observed in Christianity is a process of repentance that marginalizes conviction. You can hear it by the casualness with which a person talks about what they did wrong. You see, when David confessed his sin, he felt conviction, which communicated humble brokenness over his actions. And though every confession should not read like Psalm 51, every confession should be heartfelt. It's not good to frame our confession in a, a casual, I'm sorry, or a casual, will you forgive me for what happened, Christian speak, 
that follows a formula where there is a detached heart from the spoken words. That is not how a person engages the change process. That is something that someone does who is doing damage control over the situation or is conflict resolution technique that preserves the reputation of the transgressor. The wording of our confession must be more than Bible-sounding Christians speak. Now, I'm not suggesting confession must be overly emotive, but heartfelt is heart-explained, and you hear it in David's confession. My concern here is whether we are humbly engaging God and humbly engaging others so that we can effectively turn, repent, from what we have done. You may have seen this kind of repentance in a child. Let me give you a brief dialogue between a dad and a child and a dad and a son who sinned against his sister. It could go like this. Son, did you sin against your sister? Yes, dad. What do you need to do, son? Say, I'm sorry. Well... Are you going to say it, son? He looks to his sister and says, I'm sorry. What else, son? To his sister, he asks, Will you forgive me? And then the dad says to the daughter, What are you going to say to your brother? And the daughter says, I forgive you. That confession and that transaction of forgiveness scenario directed by the dad is performative. Now, perhaps it's necessary to teach the children how to do it, obviously, but Christians must do better than formulaic Christians speak. The Spirit of God motivates us to feel God-given conviction for what we did wrong. We may inwardly smile as our children walk through false repentance, as I have described here, but it is a much bigger problem when Christians learn the language, but there is no noticeable difference in our repentance and how our children do it. You might as well train your parrot to do it, to speak it, to say it. It'll just save more time because there is really no reality or authenticity behind it. The weight of conviction that you feel over your sin will be proportional to your love for the person that you have hurt. Now, this aspect of conviction will be problematic for some people because there are folks that they have sinned against that they do not love or they do not love well. Think about it this way. When you lose something that you love, you feel the weight of that loss a concept that applies to any cherished treasure or any cherished relationship. When you damage that thing or when you damage that person that you love in any way, you feel it. Every loving parent feels genuine love when their child is hurt or in some cases when their child dies. The pain you feel in your heart is proportional to your love for that child. It makes sense. This is common sense. Conviction is a form of grief that you have for someone who is hurting. And if you do not have that kind of grief for the person that you hurt, 
then there is really something wrong and something that you have to work on because the confession that you make, it might not be genuine because you don't really love the person that you're confessing to. Let me illustrate. In the early part of our marriage, I could sin against my wife and blow it off as though it was not a big thing. The reason that I could do this is because I had an underlying anger and unforgiveness problem toward her. I, I was a bitter husband. It was even more damning because I could blame, I could justify, I could rationalize my actions away. I can call up sin's allies and, and pick one out of the hat and use it, deflections, made it easy for me to sin against Lucia and then make excuses while never truly owning what I did. There were times when I said, I'm sorry, kind of like the son in the scenario that I illustrated earlier, or will you forgive me? But those words were not born out of a broken heart, a convicted heart over my sin against her. Then the Lord introduced me to the gospel Hey, sinner, meet gospel. And when I met the gospel, it opened my eyes to see what a low-down, dirty, rotten sinner I was. My soul began to sink into the worthlessness of my depravity as the Lord was simultaneously lifting me by realizing the riches of his mercy. My self-righteous turned into vapor, which opened a portal to see my wife in a new line. Rather than belittling her or being mean to her, I became grateful for the Lord's gift. I did not deserve his salvation or my wife. She became my treasure, and to sin against her created brokenness that I had never felt up to that time. If you feel little conviction about your nastiness towards someone, then your love for them is minimal, and your process of repentance it's going to fizzle out. David was a man after the Lord's heart, which explains why the weight of his sin was killing him. I'm unsure how long David could have continued his sin if Nathan had not confronted him. The title of this is, If Your Friend Is Not Changing, consider this. I would like for you to, I think it would be a good idea if you were to discuss the questions in the call to action here uh, with a friend. If you're not a conviction, feeling, repenter, then ask the Lord to help you to see what you may not be able to see right now and to feel the weight of your wrong so that you can effectually change and walk out biblical confession and it will put you on the path of, of repentance. And so here are a few questions as I wrap up. When you sin, how broken are you? Do you feel the weight of your actions to the degree that you are motivated to make them right, regardless of the cost? What will you change about yourself if you do not feel the weight of your actions, of your transgressions toward God and or toward others? Number two. Do you skip conviction like a child by going into the I am sorry or will you forgive me mode without meaning it? Are you more about conflict resolution and damage control than genuine repentance? Now, if you are, how will you change 
what will you work to do right now to change so that it's not about conflict resolution just to get out of the trouble? It's not about damage control, but you're truly convicted and broken by what you did to that person. Number three, is there anyone that you have sinned against for whom you refuse to ask forgiveness? If so, your sin against them and your sin against God is more significant than your love for them or your love for God. Will you go to them as soon as you can? And then number four, how do you need to change from what you have heard here? And then as you think about that, would you make a plan for change? And then would you share that with your friend? I mean, it would be fantastic if you would share this article or the video or the podcast uh, with your friend and, and you talk about it. These first four things and in the sequence of repentance, we talked about sin, number one, guilt on the hills of sin, a declarative statement or declarative reality, and then conviction and then confession. The title of this is your, if your friend is not changing, consider this. And so also as you serve other people and you see that they are not changing, of course, a lot of this, I hope that you have made personal application to yourself. But if you are working with a friend and they are not changing, maybe these first four steps in the sequence of repentance, in the order of repentance, maybe there is something broken down in that linkage. And I trust what you have just heard here will help you to diagnose that. If you want more resources, please go to lifeovercoffee.com. Please check out our No More Fear uh, uh, all online uh, training program, our, our all online course is what I was trying to say. No More Fear is an LMS, a learning management system. It's all online, and it helps you to work through being controlled by the opinions of other people overcoming what other people think about you and not being managed or manipulated by their opinions. We have a No More Fear course. It is a topical course that you can do anywhere that you wish. It is 100% online. Someone just wrote in that a lady is leading a, a small group, and so she uh, wants her entire small group to go through No More Fear, and I think that that is an excellent idea. Uh, four or five or six people working together, going through the course, and, and really working it out. By the way, if you are a supporter of our ministry, then you have access to our private forums. It is just for those who underwrite this ministry, those who, they're the ones that, that's why we can give so many resources away. But if you are a supporter and you're taking the No More Fear course, then you have a community. There is a thread in our private forum where a group of folks are talking through the course as they're going through it together. And so check out No More Fear, how to, how to overcome being managed by other people's opinions. Thank you so much and God bless. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.